gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Hey everyone, and welcome to the, the first ever episode of the Gone Mobile podcast. Um, my name is Greg Shackles, and on the line with me, I have two other hosts, John Dick and Nick Wise. So uh, on the Gone Mobile podcast, our goal is to talk about thing, all about mobile and all things mobile. So um, but definitely with a little bit of a focus on .NET and C Sharp and that whole side of things. So this really includes topics like iOS, Android, um, you know, using both of those through the Xamarin tools, and even Windows Phone, Windows RT, and so on. Um, but that said, we're also going to try and talk about a whole wider range of topics as they relate to mobile development as well. So this includes things like design and marketing and really anything as it relates to mobile. This particular episode is, is definitely more of a, a Hello World episode where you know, it's for us to introduce ourselves to you. Um, and then talk about kind of where this podcast is going to go in future episodes and, and our ideas around that. Uh, and then it'll, it'll turn into a little bit of a discussion about um, some of the, the recent things that have been happening in this space. Uh, but going forward, you can expect us to have you know, various guests on who are experts on different topics so that we can really dig into a lot of what's going on out there. Uh, and and at a, if at any point you have any suggestions for who we should get on the show or any topics you would love for us to cover, um, Definitely get in touch and let us know. I mean, we want to make sure that this is interesting for more than just the hosts. Uh, to follow, keep up with, with what we're doing and follow episodes and all that, uh, be sure to check out gonemobile.io, which is uh, where our web presence will be. Uh, you could follow us on Twitter at, uh, at gonemobilecast. And we're also on Google+. Plus. Um, you could just get the link from gonemobile.io since you know, they don't have a really easy-to-remember URL for Google+. Uh, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your, you know, whatever your favorite podcast service is. I mean, if you can't find us on whatever that may be, just let us know and we'll make sure we get there. And with that out of the way, uh, the first thing I want to do is just really just introduce ourselves uh, to you and kind of just talk about who we are real quick. And I'll go first and then get out of the way so I can let these guys actually talk too, because I've got some awesome hosts here with me. Doing great, so, Greg. <laughs> so, uh... Like I said, my name is Greg Shackles. Um, I'm an active member of the, the Xamarin community and just mobile community in general here in New York. Uh, I'm a web and mobile engineer for uh, a startup called Olo here in New York City. Um, I'm a Xamarin MVP uh, along with uh, the two other hosts here as well. Um, over the years, I, I've done a lot of writing as well. So I, I write a monthly column for Visual Studio Magazine. I have an O'Reilly book out called Mobile Development with C Sharp that came out last year that talks about iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. Uh, and I'm also the organizer of the New York City Mobile.net Developers Group, um, which is basically a user group version of what this podcast is aiming to be. So if you're in the New York City area or just coming through on a trip or anything, or you're interested in speaking at the group, you know, definitely uh, try and check us out. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Nick. Okay, um, yeah, my name's Nick Wise. Um, I'm currently an unemployed bum moving back to New Zealand. Um, I've been in the UK for the last six years. Um, and my wife and I are just now moving back to New Zealand. So this will be my first and then paused for a while podcast. Um, but yeah, once we get back, I'm planning to be a freelancer. So in the past, I've done a lot of um, sort of web work and um, various bits and pieces like that. But yeah, sort of, I definitely prefer to do the mobile stuff. So my aim is to sort of, you know, get myself into a position where I'm doing that full time, mostly for other people rather than selling my own apps. But that's that's the goal. We'll see how it gets. You know, ask me in 12 months and we'll see where I am. As Greg said, I'm also an, a Xamarin MVP. And probably the thing that most people would, would know me for at the moment is uh, BT Progress HUD, um, which is um, a little sort of heads up display that I ported over from Objective-C on a flight from London to Tokyo, uh, mostly because I needed it, because uh, the one I had didn't do proper rotation and stuff on the iPad, so I had to go and hunt for a new one. Um, and it seems to have taken a bit of a life of its own, um, you know, a, kind of the first decent piece of open source that I've actually done, so it's quite nice to, you know, get pull requests from people and that sort of thing, so yeah, quite enjoyed doing that. Other than that, yeah, just, um, you can usually find me on my blog um, or GitHub, various places around there, or on Twitter as at FastChicken. All right. Uh, John? Yeah, so... Uh... I'm a DBA, actually, which is kind of odd. I, I have to tell that story Ooh. to everyone when I talk to people about mobile. It's like, what do you do? Well, I'm a database administrator. So that's what I do right now, for now. And uh, I work on a lot of mobile stuff on the side. I'm kind of an open source uh, uh, addict, so I like to release a lot of stuff open source. Uh, 
few, you might know a few of my libraries. One of them's uh, PushSharp, and I also do one called zebracrossing.net.mobile, which is a really long name for a barcode scanner. And I've got a few other little things going on, but um, that's sort of what I work on these days. I do a, a few little apps for uh, freelance work on the side, but uh, for the most part, uh, just working on my, my bigger open source projects. All right. Um, so the as Nick said, that he's going to be traveling for a bit, moving back to New Zealand. So um, we're going to have probably some other hosts filling in in the meantime in future episodes. But yeah, so we're, we're really excited to get going on this podcast and just kind of dig deeper into this space. I mean, basically, we, we saw a need for, or an opening really, for just more in-depth conversation around these topics. So we really hope to kind of fill that niche. Yeah, I think that's a, um, a pretty good segue into um, just talking about the timing with uh, Chris's podcast and Pierce there started a, a little Xamarin podcast there. Yeah, definitely. You know, we had been talking about doing this thing for quite some time, I think, and nobody ever really got going on it. And finally, we saw this other podcast come out and we're like, you know what, we should finally do this and get it out there. So it is a little bit particular timing with the other one coming out, but I think we're going to be a little bit different from it and um, that we're, we're going to try and go in-depth and have, like Greg was saying, have guests on and, and really tackle topics. Um, not a huge spectrum of topics in every episode, but at least going in-depth into one or two. So it kind of should be a nice uh, compliment to their podcast there. Yeah, I think yeah, we can probably I, credit them a little bit as well with um, <clears throat> sort of absolutely. prodding us to actually do something. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's like, true. oh, they, they've done it. Best we actually, you know, do it this time. Yeah, if they can get going, we can finally do it, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I definitely encourage everyone to check out that podcast as well. It's with uh, it's with Chris Hardy and Pierce Boggan, both who work for for Xamarin right now, and uh, they're they're going to be going over, um, you know, just news and updates and, and various things in the, the Xamarin related world. So I think it'll be a pretty good complement to to what we're going to do here. So. I, I think there's space for all of us in here. Yeah, I definitely think there's there's definitely room for more than one. You know, it's such mobile, is such a big topic at the moment. Um, you know, I think there's there's certainly space for having more than one podcast. You know, around the Xamarin stuff, anyway. So, um, I think at this point we could just kind of open it up to some discussion around uh, a few things that have been going on. Um, one of the one of the big things that's obviously coming down the pipeline and about like a week away from being released or something like that is is iOS seven. Uh, and I mean, granted, there, there's a lot of it that's still technically under NDA, so there's a limit to how much we can talk about it. But even from the the public facing things, I would definitely love to open it up to to you guys to hear your thoughts on, you know. Yeah, I, th what, I think what you, on the what you think about it. I think on the NDA side, um, unless one of us is editing this incredibly quickly, um, we'll probably be out at about the same time as iOS seven is rumored to be released. So. Living on I'm the fairly side. easy about the NDA stuff. Well, supposedly it's next week. Yeah. Or, or thereabouts. So, you know, unless we manage to release this incredibly quickly, then... Yeah. That's true. I, I think we... You know, yes, it's NDA. I think anyone who actually needs to know about it probably already has an account and knows about it. So, that, yeah. That's anyway. true. Didn't Most you... news sites are posting pretty detailed uh, updates every time there's a new beta release anyway. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, what do you what do you guys think of it? How extensively have you been using iOS seven since uh, you know the, as the betas have come out? I really haven't done a lot of development on it yet. I'm kind of looking. You know, it's one of those things I should have been starting a long time ago, probably for some of the apps I've been doing. But uh, just from a user perspective, I mean, it's quite different, and I think I like it overall. I think Nick has a different opinion, and and I don't know, Nick, have you done any updates uh, to your app in the for um, iOS and stuff? I've done bug fix updates, so I've made sure all my apps work on it. Um, like you, I haven't really done particularly much with the APIs. I've had a little bit of a hack around just to see what happens if I do this sort of thing. Um, but in general, yeah, it, it's more been mostly you know, because I'm about to move and pretty much be offline for about two months that I haven't really tackled like a full UI redesign, um, mostly because I, I don't really have time to do it. Um, that said, though, both of my two main apps that I've got in the App Store, um, Mobile Agent and TripWallet, I've done sort of a redesign anyway over the last six months. Just most of them were sort of the design was finalized um, before iOS 7 was actually announced. Well, you know, iOS 7 was always coming, but what it was before that was announced. Um, but luckily, most of them fit in quite well. So I've gone from a relatively flat style of, um, you know, style of design anyway. Um, so aside from a few bits and pieces, they kind of fit in roughly with, you know, with what the operating system now looks like. 
So I don't think I've got that much work to do there, which is quite good. Yeah, it's great. It's the design side of it is definitely something I, I I'm starting to explore now. I haven't really dug in as much as I need to just because of other commitments, but uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting time when this does really just get its general availability release and you know, some apps are just going to stand out and feel really awkward uh, on the new style. So I think it's going to be kind of a little bit of a, a cleansing fire for a lot of apps to kind of like stand out if they want to or just kind of fade away with, you know, some archaic looking design. Well, I think yeah. one of the biggest things that you see that stands out right away, at, you know, for me anyway, was using the old apps that are compiled against the old SDK that have the old keyboard and everything. And you could just kind of like you saying right away, it's like, oh, man, this is. This is just not the right thing to to be seen on the uh, operating system version. Yeah, definitely. Um, but even but on the you know outside of the design stuff, there for me there's there's a lot of new API features that are that are going to be pretty exciting. I mean, there's you know they're, they're finally making push notifications actually useful for an application. Which yeah, that that one's like a really uh, big interest to me actually, and I think a lot of people underestimate that. And we're talking about the feature of being able to do, I think, background tasks and being able to do them via push notifications. So what happens now in iOS is you can send out a push notification, but it doesn't actually let you do anything in your application side of things until the user interacts with it and opens your application. Well, in iOS 7, we're going to be able to actually run some code when a notification comes in. And I think that's really going to change a lot of... uh, you know, the performance and speed of, of applications, like just even something like Gmail, they could update all the email in the background whenever you get a push notification so that when you go into the app, you're not waiting for those emails to load. And I think that really is going to dramatically increase the, the user experience. Yeah, I think there was a, a fair bit of stuff said about like the actually running your application in the background, so, you know, to like a service on Android. But I think the push notifications one is going to be even more important because you've then got some server that you know lives off in the cloud and you don't have to worry about battery life that's doing all the hard work. It then just pings down a, a push notification and you know the, the mobile client can pop up and go, right, now I need to do a, a small amount of work, which should mean that the, you, know, you, you don't lose the battery life benefits of not having permanent background processes. Um, so yeah, I think that one's going to be huge. I think the, the iOS background processes are going to be similar to like Windows Phone where it's run occasionally. Uh, they're going to kind of lump all of the processes together from different apps and do them when the phone's awake, if possible. So as a developer, you really don't have control of when that happens, which is unfortunate in some ways. But, uh, you know, you get it for the, the battery life perspective that Apple's trying to hold up. So, yeah, yeah, these push notifications basically let you do the updates and run in the background whenever you want to on your schedule. Right. And I know they were they were talking about, um, you know, on the note of not having control over when things execute. Apple is talking about them trying to be really proactive and smart about when they run things. So to kind of start noticing what hours you use your phone at and trying to run things, you know, 15 minutes before you get up or something right. like that. So you definitely can't rely on it running at a, a particular time, but I, th- I definitely think it, it's pretty exciting. And even, for, like, as we said, from the, sim- this, uh, the simple point of when you get a push notification, you can actually store the data that's in that notification instead of having to re-download it. Um, it's just going to make for a much nicer user experience. And, and honestly, that was kind of one of the main reasons I've been an Android user for a while. I really didn't like the idea that, you know, I use Gmail, I use a lot of Google services, and when I went into my applications after I got a notification, you know, you could read the subject of your email right on the notification, but when you go in, it was like, oh man, now i got to wait for this to load. And just kind of doing that over and over was really repetitive. So I, I, this may actually get me to consider iOS again as my, my daily device. Yeah, and I'm, a, I'm an iOS user, but for me, I, I could definitely relate to the pain of the, the push notification thing. Because a lot of times I'll get the notification, you know, while it's in my pocket. And then I go down into the, the subway here in New York where I don't have service. And I can't actually get the thing that sent, you know, I can't get to the data that the notification was for until I get back outside. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Uh, it's yeah, it's the same on the tube here. It's something I really didn't get until I got to London. And, you know, I used to have a 50-minute commute, 45 minutes of which was underground. And, yeah, having offline apps, it just makes such a difference for that sort of thing. But, yeah, I love the idea of the timed ones, though. You know, the, the whole geofencing thing was a nice hack around it. But having that formalized in, in the operating system, you know, I usually leave home, say, half past eight in the morning. You know, 8.15, great, phone wakes up, downloads my podcasts and updates Insta, um, Instapaper. That'd be lovely. Definitely. And then I know there's some improvements to the, the Bluetooth, uh, you know, the BTLE support that's coming in iOS 7. And I know, I don't know if either of you guys uh, have a Pebble, 
But if you have a Pebble with, with iOS, it's almost useless. It's basically a thing that sends text messages to my wrist and, um, <laughs> and phone calls and occasionally email when it feels like it, but not always. And, um, but I, the, and you always have to resync it a couple times a day anytime you get you know, outside of range with your phone. And it, it's just really a frustrating experience. But that, that's supposed to improve a lot in iOS 7, so I'm definitely pretty excited for that part. The only Bluetooth LE device I've ever had, and I only had it for a brief amount of time because the app kind of sucked, even though the device was lovely, um, was the Fitbit, um, the, the little tiny wrist-mounted one. And I've, I've currently got a Jawbone Up, which you've got to plug into the headphone socket. And that works well enough, but you've got to take it off and plug it into the headphone socket, which is right. a slight pain in, you know, it's a bit of a pain in the backside, but, it, you know, it's a workable compromise. Whereas the other one, it was just like, I'll open the app. It's synced. Done. Okay. You know, and that, that sort of thing, I think, while still having about a close to 10-day battery life, is I think that's going to really change a lot of, you know, wearable, small sensors, not necessarily, you know, the, the Apple wrist-mounted watch or whatever, you know, <laughs> Samsung copy off them lately, but, you know, other sensors, like, for example, on my bike, I had a Bluetooth LE um, cadence speed um I think it can do power as well, but I don't have the right bits on it. You know, a thing that'll monitor that. So it'll hook up to my phone straight away and, you know, run something like Strava and it'll pull that data in off my bike. Mm -hmm. um, I think that sort of thing is going to really, you know, come to the fore with the Bluetooth LE stuff. It's just, yeah, I think it might be, um, might, might be quite sort of a sleeper hit, I think. Yeah, I definitely think so too. I mean, obviously wearables are, are a pretty up and coming thing right now. I, I have a Fitbit as well and, you know, I wear it all the time and it, it generally works pretty well, but uh, just having more support for these devices that can run, that are, you know, really single purpose devices that can run for a week or two at a time without being charged is, is uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, nobody wants to go and charge their watch every night and all that kind of thing. And yeah, I could I deal with that. I, I could deal with that if the watch gave decent functionality. Like, you know, like I do that with my phone, basically, you know, I've got to plug it in every night and I could happily plug my watch in if if the functionality was good, but looking at the Pebble, one of the guys I used to work with had one, and it just wasn't useful enough to warrant the, the pain of having to charge it all the time and all that sort of thing. You know, it was a yeah, good, well, good version 0.1, but yeah, it didn't make me rush out and want to buy one. Sure, and um, I can say that I generally have to charge my Pebble about about once a week, so it, it does have pretty good life on That's it. The only bad. thing that yeah, the only thing that drives me crazy about it is it doesn't give you, like, you know, the Fitbit will actually give you some kind of notification in your phone when your battery's low. So, you like, you get a little bit of a heads up that, hey, you should go plug this thing in. But with the only time I ever find out that my Pebble is, you know, dead is when I, I pick it up in the morning or I look at my wrist and it's a blank screen. <laughs> so <laughs> they could definitely improve that part of the experience for sure. Yeah, I just feel like we're getting to the point where we've got all these devices and it's like, you know, to remember to charge them all, and some of them last a different amount of time, and some of them need to be charged every day. It's just uh, so tedious, so it's really nice to see this kind of stuff coming out. Um, and one of the things that I thought is kind of interesting about the low-energy Bluetooth stuff is, I don't know if you guys have looked at the iBeacons uh, at all, the little Bluetooth LE location. I've read the marketing bill on the Apple site. That was about it. <laughs> it sounded interesting. Yeah, well, I was doing some work on... a project for someone where they wanted to basically have geofencing but like way more geofences than ios would allow because i think ios allows something like 20 geofences per app and this was mm -hmm. something that they were looking at as a an alternate means to doing the geofencing and, and a little bit more accurate of geofencing so i think we might see a an uptake of this idea of the, the bluetooth low energy to do a whole bunch of different things you know you've got your watch you've got maybe your geofencing or kind of uh information and then uh, even, I wonder if we'll start seeing it getting into payment information. Uh, that, yeah, I, I mean, think that's, that's going to be a big one because like the, the um, is it Visa PayWave or whatever, the ones where you just hold your card up against it, they're really starting to take off over here. Um, you can pay for you know, lots of things with just a, a prox card. Um, yeah, here too. It, yeah, even to the point where you can get on a bus and pay for it with that instead of using an Oyster card, which is you know, the local travel card. Um, but it would be kind of nice if you could just wave your phone over it. And I think, you know, the Bluetooth LE stuff might be, you know, might be the, the bit that actually works for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's, 
it's definitely interesting. I, I, I keep wondering when something is really going to take hold in that space. I mean, there's there's a lot of people, you know, making attempts, and there's the whole NFC thing that Android has, and Windows Phone even has NFC now, um, but Apple just refuses to adopt it, and that might be for the best because I mean, there's definitely security problems that can happen from that, and that's the part that concerns me the most, I think, with you know using your phone as a payment device. But that said, you know. The, the more you can use your phone as that kind of thing, the, the more exciting it is and the more compelling it is. And especially, I mean, what I do as a day job is in, you know, online ordering and, and payment and stuff. So I definitely always have my ear to the ground on, on things in that space. I'm just always surprised. Uh, I was just in the in Michigan uh, last weekend on a vacation. I'm always surprised at how uh, it seems like the U.S. almost is the slowest uptake on some of these technologies like you know over here we've got the pay wave we've got all that kind of stuff i've even seen some nfc things uh, kicking around uh hmm. but we you know went over to michigan went up for dinner and there's still nobody comes to your table with the credit card machine nobody uses the pin uh with the chip in the cards it seems i don't know maybe that's uh, more of my area and it, it's a little bit more common in new york or bigger areas like that but uh, yeah it's really not i mean there's a there's definitely a few startups um that are starting to take hold in, like it's really starting to take hold in smaller shops. So things like coffee shops and, and you know, real local places, that's where you're starting to see things like Square and, you know, even PayPal has an offering and things like that. And there's a couple other startups that have apps that you basically open it and scan a QR code or something to that effect. Yeah, I saw uh, one of those and, in Boston. It looked quite cool. Yeah, they're definitely cool. I mean, there's they're starting to get uptake in, in those smaller shops and I think they're having a hard time breaking into you know, bigger chains and stuff who are really currently tied down by, you know, by all this legacy hardware and, and things like that. So there, there's a whole industry just kind of ripe for disruption, I think, right now, as far as like point of sale systems and payment systems go. Yeah, certainly. A, it's going to, I think it's going to be an interesting space. Um, that's for yeah, sure. For you know, getting, getting cross-platform will be fun, but someone I'm sure will work that bit out. And you put one app on both sides. It's interesting to hear you guys saying that it's, it's, there's a big uptake of it in you know the areas that you're in, and that's that's pretty cool to hear. Like, as long as as long as it's it's starting to get adopted somewhere, then it'll start to take off. But you know, yeah, well, it's, it's frustrating both, here in both New Zealand and in the UK. And I I haven't really been around Europe particularly much lately, but I imagine it's around there as well. Yeah, certainly the tap, you know, the the hold your card up to pay thing is going quite well. But one thing that's always surprised me is how I don't know, for lack of a better word, backwards America always felt about card payments. Because I'd turn up in, I don't know, a supermarket. I think I was in somewhere in southern Colorado. I bought $500 worth of iTunes vouchers, because that's how I get my mu music and movies and stuff. Um, mm. They just swiped my card. I signed on the screen. I walked out with 500 bucks worth of cash, basically, which yeah. just felt really insecure. Where I come <laughs> from a, a country, New Zealand, where we've had um, swipe and pin straight out of your bank account. So effectively a debit card, but it couldn't be used as a visa as well. It was just straight out of your bank, that was it, you could only use it at the terminals. We've had that since, oh God, I think since ever since I've had a bank account, so probably at least early 90s, probably mid 80s. Um, you know, it's all going through a centralized system, all the banks all contri contribute to the centralized system and then it goes out from there, so there's almost no fees with it. And then, you know, to, to then go over, over to the States nearly 20 years later and, you know, yeah, swipe your card, sign, walk out, it's like, this just felt really insecure. Yeah, we um, have uh, a lot of the, the pin stuff now where, you know, instead of swiping your card, you put the thing in, it's got the pin chip, you have to enter your, your actual pin number. Yeah. So a lot of vendors have been really pushed to do that because I think they lower the fees on those transactions for the vendors because it's a safer, more authorized, approved transaction. So it's, I, I'm the same way. I find it really odd to go sit down at a restaurant in the U.S. and have, you know, give them my card. They walk away with my card. And yeah, I'm like, no, and don't take back. my card away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come it's back here. It's really strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I could probably rant for an entire episode on the, the payment stuff in the U.S., uh, but I'll, I'll try and refrain from, you know, letting that get the better of me. Later episodes. So, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. So kind of jumping out of this stuff, um, like, have you guys played with uh, the Chromecast? Did you pick one up when it came out? Mine is uh, over in the U.S. right now. I've got to get over there to pick it up because as uh, Nick is probably more familiar with than I am. It's hard to get things in other countries than the U.S. when they first are released. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's available over here in the U.K. I haven't so checked, to be perfectly honest, because <laughs> I looked at it and thought, I've got an Apple TV. Um, I'm not sure if I need another thing to plug in to, to throw movies around. Uh, it yeah, does I, look like I, an interesting I, device, though. 
It's. I was impressed. I mean, I picked it up because it, it was like $35, and it even, when I got it, it came with three months of Netflix credit. So it basically turned it into a $10 device for me. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, pretty it, it's really, even if it was terrible, it's, it's really not a loss at all. Um, but I picked it up. I have an Apple TV on my main living room television, and then I don't have, I'd been contemplating picking up an, another Apple TV for our, the one, the set in our bedroom. But I've, I figured I would give the Chromecast a shot in there. And really, I don't need much out of it. I just wanted something to throw Netflix on because we have, we have Netflix on the, the Blu-ray player in that room, but the interface is terrible. Um, that was basically the same reason that I bought the Apple TV for the living room is, you know, a nicer, if, if, if all it was was a nice interface to Netflix, then it was a net gain as far as I was concerned. Um, but I was actually pretty impressed for, especially for a $35 device. I, the setup process was pretty seamless. It was very Apple-esque almost, like it just really smooth, walked you through. It only took a couple minutes. And then, you know, all you had to do was fire up the Netflix app, which had secretly gotten this feature, you know, about a few weeks before that. And then, you know, there, there's still some kinks in the Netflix app and some of the others, but the, the streaming quality between like my iPad or my iPhone and the, the Chromecast is, is really good. Okay, uh, so you're playing that out of the Netflix iOS app? Yeah, yeah, it's built right in. It's basically, oh, it's, it's kind of nice. like what, what you would do with, with AirPlay. So you say, you know, I want to play this on the iPad or I want to play this on the Chromecast. Okay. It, it's a little bit different though in that, in I mean, you can do a streaming directly to the, the Chromecast from a device, but in the in the, uh, what Netflix does is your device is actually more of a remote control for the Chromecast. So it goes and tells Chromecast that, hey, I want to watch this movie from Netflix. And then Net the Chromecast actually streams uh, online by itself. So it, you've got an open connection between your, your Android device or iOS device, whatever, to tell it what to play and to stop and to pause and fast forward and all that kind of stuff. But the actual streaming is happening directly on the device. And I, I think that's a really big difference between how... AirPlay works and how this kind of setup works. It's I think it's a lot more flexible. You don't have to have your device always uh, open and running and killing its battery, streaming video over your your Wi-Fi. So I think it's a a big differentiator. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the the point about the remote is something I was going to make as well because it's you know it's a much nicer interface to use you know a tablet as just a remote like that. And I even do that with uh, we have FiOS here for cable. And Fios has an app for the iPad, and you can use that to control, like over your local, uh, local, you know, uh, home network. You can just use that to control your set-top box. So I can scroll through the TV listings on my iPad, hit a show I want to watch, or hit record, or anything like that. And it's so much nicer than using some clunky little remote. It's kind of like the ultimate Logitech Harmony remote kind of deal. Like every app is its own remote, right? So it's all customized to to the experience. It's I think it's exactly. great. And I do, I do love my Harmony. I've had it for probably like six years now, and it's still like the best remote I've seen on the market. But, you know, being able to use your tablet and just kind of fly around really quickly is, is definitely really slick. And yeah, being able to, you could do other stuff on your iPad while you're streaming. You know, you can go yeah. read something. You, can, you could do whatever you want and just jump back to the Netflix app if you want to pause or switch episodes or anything. So it's, not, it's definitely not perfect yet. The, there's... There's some kinks. You, you run into some weird cases where Netflix forgets that it's streaming and you have to, you know, just kind of jump through some hoops to get it to remember that something's playing. Or, But for the most part, I'm, I'm definitely pretty impressed with it. Well, and you know, with all these, you know, cheaper tablets coming out, like even the new Nexus 7, so you've basically now got a, a $200 remote for your living room if you want, right? Which isn't out really crazy compared to the, the Logitech Harmony remotes and everything. Yeah, that's a good point too. I mean, I think back when I got my my Harmony, I think that was probably like one hundred fifty dollars or something like that. So they're definitely comparable. Yeah, that's a and, that's a space that I'm I'm not usually in because we don't actually really have a TV. We have a twenty four inch monitor mounted to the wall with an Apple TV on it, so it's not really a television per se. So I've always thought of like usually I'll, I'll use an iPod Touch for that, and so it's my test device if I'm doing development, and then use it as a remote control for most of the rest of the time. And it always felt really expensive, but then. Yeah, if you compare it to 150 bucks or so for a, you know Logitech Harmony or you know some of the really big ones, it doesn't actually feel quite so bad anymore. And I'm yeah, sort of Apple's sort of play of having an Apple TV and then controlling it with you know some sort of iOS device starts to make a lot more sense. Um, it doesn't when you sort of think 200 bucks just for a remote that is you know not really doing anything that your little push button thing can't do. But when you start comparing it to some of the really high end stuff, then yeah, actually that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, definitely. 
So jumping out of the Google world now I mean, over to the Microsoft side of things, you know, obviously one of the big stories that's happened recently is Balmer announcing his retirement um, sometime in the next year. Uh, what do you guys think about that? John? <laughs> I'm happy to go, but John? Um, it, I, I kind of wonder, I, maybe a lot of people wonder, you know, why did why this didn't happen sooner. It almost seems like, um, I, I think, I forget the the interview that, I think it was Bomber that did it, where he he kind of alluded to Windows 8 not being terribly successful, and they knew it, and they kind of had to change their their tune and direction. And I think with the big shakeups that they've had uh, over the last year, you know, reorganizing the company and restructuring some things, I think that's uh, really positive. And and maybe he finally realized that it it was his time to step out. I'm I'm not sure, but I I, I kind of think that's a, a great thing for them to get some new direction and some new blood up there and and even if it's just changing people's perspectives of the company uh, I think that's going to be a good marketing move at least for them yeah I think the advantage isn't so much Barmer going um, you know he, he seems to be a very well you know from what I've seen externally I've never actually met him he seems to be very charismatic and sort of um, developers, developers developers yeah yeah <laughs> very he's a very strong guy but not someone you sort of like Steve Jobs but without the creativity like a like yeah. a marketing and sales Steve Jobs, so the you know the passion and the the intensity, but focused towards marketing and sales rather than focused towards you know product development and you know all the stuff that Jobs was good at. But I think it'll be more what happens you know what fills the vacuum. So what comes around when he's gone. So who gets to be the CEO? Do they give you know put Windows and Office into a little we're making money bucket over there and keep everything else onto one side and you know, do they start splitting things up or do they make it even more tight or, you know, I think it's more, not so much that Barmer is going, it's more what will happen once he's gone. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with that. I, it'll be an interesting time to see how they play this. Um, and there's also a lot of speculation that it wasn't exactly a voluntary retirement and that he was kind right. of forced to do it, which wouldn't really surprise me either. But, you know, I don't, I don't have anything against him personally. I just, he was obviously like pretty short-sighted in the goals of Microsoft at a, a critical time some years back, at, you know, around when the, the iPhone was launching, and he basically blew it off as being something that would never go anywhere. And then now Microsoft is obviously just trying to play catch-up in the industry and really, you know, become a player again in a in a world that they just kind of left behind. Yeah. So, do either of you guys yeah. use um, Windows eight point one or eight? No, not eight point one because you can't use that. Um, Windows eight as your you know main desktop. OS? I, I, I was do. for a while, yeah. Yeah, because I, I tried using it for a little bit and basically went back to, to Windows 7. Um, <laughs> just big, It just sort of felt... I don't know, the, the whole flat UI thing, as flat as it is, is something that I don't like as much. And it just felt really, I don't know, sort of unpolished. Sure. So the, the, the thing with me in, in Windows 8, is, and I actually do quite like it, um, but I say that with the caveat of the fact that I never use the WinRT side of things. Oh, okay. So the only, the only time I ever see the, you know, the big squares in that whole menu is when I hit the Windows key, because it's a big start menu as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. So I hit, win, I hit the Windows key, I start typing the thing I want, which still works like the old one used to. Um, and then I hit enter and I'm back on the desktop side and on the desktop side things they look a little nicer It's there, there's been some improvements there. Um, it's a little bit faster than Windows 7. I found so Yeah, maybe I didn't that, give it quite long enough Yeah, because of the desktop side improvements. I do I do consider it an upgrade and it was pretty cheap upgrade from Windows 7 as well um, but yeah, I definitely don't use the the WinRT side of things. I just don't have a real use for it. Yeah, I think you nailed it from the desktop point of view of things. Like that that whole new start menu setup. I'm the same way. I never really used that much. It, but if you consider it just to be a big start menu, it's actually it's actually really not bad. It's I find it a little bit quicker to be searching for apps when you start typing their names in. And like you said, you you type what you want, you hit enter, and you're back to your desktop. You really you really don't have to see that start menu. But I mean, having yeah. said that, it's kind of weird that they put that in. Um, because you, you really don't use it. I mean, I think it makes sense in a lot of the devices that we're seeing. I know at my company we're starting to see uh, people getting the tablets that they then dock uh, at their desk. You know, some of the people who don't require as powerful machines, it's a, a great mix of having that tablet they can bring to a meeting 
and having the desktop still that they can use when they're sitting at their desk and now they don't have to buy two devices. Yeah, it's definitely true. And I've seen, I became a little more convinced of the the touch side of things in Windows 8 when I saw someone actively using um, one of those, like, I forget the the brand, one of those, the Carbon Touch laptops that have, it's like one of those really light laptops. Oh, Lenovo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the one um, Scott Hanselman loves. Yeah, well, I I saw saw him, he did. Yeah, he well, he was the one I was referring to. I saw him using it at at Evolve, and it it becomes a lot more compelling when you can see him like just doing little things on the screen that would take a while with a mouse, and you can really easily switch context between the two. Um, so that's when the the worlds start to bridge a little bit, and it becomes more compelling. But on like when I'm just doing development on my my you know powerful desktop machine, I have no use for any of that stuff, and the the charm things like the charms bar and all the weird gesture things just kind of get in the way with the normal mouse. Yeah, definitely. So it, the, it, it's a little bit of an awkward middle ground there. So is that sort of the point of 8.1, um, is to lock out more of that start screen stuff? I don't think so, really. It is seems it just like, the start button of it brought back? Well, yeah, they put the start button back, which just brings you to that same uh, tiled launch uh, screen. Yeah, it's not the old start menu. It's it's basically the equivalent of hitting the Windows key. So Right, so basically they've just added an icon back. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> I was expecting, and, you know, the whole basically the old start menu style thing. No, but, I think yeah. they're they're pretty uh, set on on keeping this way of doing things. And like we've been saying, Greg and I, it's it's really not. I don't know. As working with it myself, I don't find it to be a big deal. Just because if you think about it the right way, it's it's really no different. It's just a bigger version of the old one. Yeah. Exactly. And I originally upgraded. Um, just because you had to in order to do Windows Phone 8 development. So to install that SDK, I needed exactly. Windows 8. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll give this a shot. And, you know, I, th- I think it worked out. I'm, I have no real... Comp- I didn't feel like I lost anything by upgrading. So that's, you know, I guess that's not a glowing endorsement, but it's, it's not <laughs> one I could really complain too much about either. Yeah, I'll have to give it, uh, give it another try next time I need to rebuild a VM. So there was an article that came out... Uh, Sometime in this past week, I saw it yesterday, but I think it might have been a couple days old at that point. Um, it was titled, Why Microsoft.net Failed on InfoWorld. Um, I was curious if you guys saw that making the rounds. Yeah, yep. I definitely saw it. Yeah, I, I thought it was, well, I, I, we're probably all in agreement given the, that we're hosts of a podcast on this topic, but I, I, I thought it was filled with pretty poor data, um, just kind of pretty inaccurate conclusions based on what's going on. Um, but I was definitely curious to open it up to, to the group here and see, you know, what you guys thought of it if you, if you read through it. He did seem to be a little bit obsessed with um, DLLs and SharePoint. Yeah, and it was, the assumption seemed to be that that was their, you know, it's not all .NET is is SharePoint and BizTalk and, you know, SQL Server and whatever. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, I think he did have some some good points. Um, you know, the industry is sort of moving in the general direction of software as a service and platforms and infrastructure and all the rest of it as a service. And really, your only options in there are, are sort of to roll it out onto Azure, unless you want to run it yourself and put it on EC2 or equivalent. Right. Um, but other than that, it's... I don't know. People have been sort of saying .NET's dead for quite a while, and... Every time you sort of look around and go, well, yeah, but you can still run it on lots of different things and it's still being updated and arguably is still one of the nicer languages and frameworks around. Well, you know, it's not perfect, but available. it's... Sorry? Well, just look at all the jobs available still. I mean, everyone, there's still a ton of people using .NET in, in their corporate environments and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I could be biased because I work for a startup that is based on .NET, um, but, you know, I'm... I have no problems with the community. I mean, we use, you know, the Microsoft stack at the base layer, but that doesn't mean we're, you know, we're not using Entity Framework and SharePoint and all of that kind of stuff. So there's a pretty rich environment out there and, like, awesome projects and things that you can use in your apps. And, you know, like the recent updates to C Sharp and all of that, like, it's a pretty thriving environment as far as I can tell. The reason we're all here, I mean, C Sharp is one of the only languages, aside from maybe JavaScript, that can basically run everywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Mono takes it to iOS, Android, you know, Linux, Mac, wherever wherever you need to go. There's, you know, the .NET micro framework that runs on, you know, things like the Agent Smartwatch. There's, you know, it runs on the Xbox and Windows. I mean, it's really, it's really everywhere. So just to make a blanket statement like that, that 
you know, the ecosystem failed. And if you're, if you hedged your bets on .NET, then you're screwed. I thought that was, it was, it was pretty extreme. Yeah, I, I sort of think that the argument of if you bet your, you know, your company on X, whatever X happens to be, doesn't ever really hold water. Um, like, for example, I was looking around recently at some stuff I used to work for Borland many, many, many lifetimes ago, um, doing sort of Delphi and Java stuff. And if you look around now, Delphi's very much still alive. You know, Embarcadero's put it on iOS and Android. Um, admittedly, they've gone down a route that I don't particularly like. They've, you know, they've gone down the, the common UI controls and will map them underneath for you rather than, say, for example, the Xamarin way of just using the native APIs. But that aside, you know, you could still take Delphi code that maybe you wrote, in my case, it would be nearly 15 years ago, and, you know, have it running on, on modern stuff. And a lot of people, you know, certainly in the last 10 years, sort of have said, you know, Delphi is dead. And by the looks of it, it's a hell of a long way off being dead. You know, it's not as popular maybe as it was, but, you know, it certainly isn't dead. And I think that goes for pretty much any, any technology. You know, it, it might not be the, the cool hot thing right at the moment, but then the cool hot thing isn't the cool hot thing for particularly long either. You know, Rails used to be the cool hot thing and now Node is, for example, or, you know, depending on where you look, you know, maybe Clojure is or something else. You know, there's all sorts of new hot things come and go very quickly. Well, the thing about new hot things is that they're, they're a hot thing for a little while and then they get, it gets quiet when people actually start doing real work with them. So you hear a little bit less about it. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what happened with Rails and even with Node. Node isn't, you know, like the coolest kid in town everywhere anymore, but that's because people are just heads down actually using it in production and, and writing stuff with it. So it's, it's less of a, a headline grabber. Yeah, usually a good indication of, of how people are actually enjoying using something is just to watch the Twitter stream to see how many people are, are basically swearing at their IDE or language <laughs> or whatever of choice. Um, yeah, one thing, I, I certainly haven't seen that many and tried to keep an eye out for this, that many on the Xamarin tools of people swearing at them, except for the odd specific case of licensing <laughs> occasionally from a certain person, but that's fine. Um, uh. But, you know, for all the, the, you know, the people that are sort of like Objective-C is the only way to go, then you sort of, I follow a lot of people that are, you know, Objective-C iOS people who swear very loudly at Xcode. And, you know, Xcode obviously isn't perfect, no IDE is. Um, and it's probably no worse than any of the other ones, but it's, I think it's probably a quite a good indication of, you know, the number of swear words per tweet on a, on a particular thing. You know, it's the same as your code, you know, the, <laughs> the number of WTFs per second when someone's doing a code review. Oh, uh, yes, the classic XKCD. <laughs> oh, yeah. There should definitely be a website that tracks Twitter and plots, you know, swear words versus, you know, hashtag or search term or something. And Sounds I think there's, like there's this a need is a to... good project for you to start then, Greg. Oh, yeah, because I, I have all sorts of free time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably could pull it out with Google's Zeitgeist, I imagine. You know, that, that whole you can trend, do the trend over time thing with keywords. Have to, could be, have to look could be worth it. a try. I'll have a look. <laughs> all right, so is there anything else that uh, you guys wanted to talk about today? Um, possibly the Leap Motion one as well, which is um, just down the bottom there. Um, that was something, for me anyway, that I didn't really notice until everyone started suddenly tweeting and posting of my leap motion has just turned up. So I kind of got blindsided by it almost. And, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, cool. So what's that? And yeah. So did you guys get one? No, I haven't. No, okay. uh, I've seen I've seen videos and like some demos of it being used, but I haven't had a, a I haven't honestly haven't had a big drive to go do it. Yeah, um, it looks I'm, it looks pretty cool, but I'm definitely way tried. too lazy to to be holding my hand up over some sensor thing for you know <laughs> hours on end. Yeah, I think I mean there's a lot of interesting things, um, you know, applications of that kind of technology. I mean, the same goes for the Connect. I mean, when the Connect first came out, I was pretty excited about it, and not because I, I really don't even play games all that often. I don't have an Xbox or anything right now, um, but I think there's a lot of cool applications, you know, in the business world and just things like that uh, of, you know, motion sensors and things that you don't, you can, you know, just wave your arm to interact with. Uh, it's the same kind of reason that I'm excited for technology like Google Glass. Like, I, I don't anticipate myself, and I say this now, I'll probably, you know, I'll, you know, it, it'll be probably get to be commonplace. But, um, but I think there's a lot of cool things that you could do in different industries when you start having technology that lets you interact with it without having to, you know, physically touch something, you know, be it 
a doctor or a surgeon or something or you know a mechanic or anything i mean there, there's a whole world of cool stuff you can do so i in that sense i you know i'm pretty excited to see more and more development in in that kind of tech yeah from what i was reading about the leap motion um it was a cool idea but didn't necessarily execute quite as well um which is something i've already found because like recently um because we're leaving london my wife and i decided we were going to do um two days of tourism um, which if you mispronounce that slightly sounds like we were going to blow things up but no um so you know going to some of the the museums that we hadn't been to in six years because that was actually something we were kind of told to do when we first got here was you know land make sure you go and see all the big tourist sites when you first get there because as soon as you get jobs you won't have time which was absolutely true and i had a job within nine days of landing here so we didn't actually get to do very much so we've made a point of doing some of them when we came back but for example in the science museum they, they had a whole bunch of sort of you know touch sensitive things and i immediately expect it to work at least as well as an ipad and they were I don't know what the technology behind them was, but they were not that good. And so I think something like the Leap Motion um, still needs to have, you know, for it to be more than just a toy for people to play with and hack around a bit, it needs to work as well as a lot of the other technologies. So people expect to be able to interact with it straight away, to have it immediately recognize what they're doing. And if it doesn't, it's just sort of, yeah, I don't know. It, it then becomes, I think, quite hard for it to take off. Which is a pity because you know, as an idea, I think that you know, I think I prefer that to actually touching my screen, you know, just sort of manipulating it in front and above the keyboard, maybe. But you know, if it doesn't work particularly well, then. Well, I just wonder how you know how some of these ideas. Obviously, we're going to keep refining and working on these types of things. But if I think of something like voice recognition, I mean, it's come a long way, but it's still, for me anyway, not at the point where it's something I can reliably use on a daily basis uh, a lot. So something like this leap motion kind of makes me wonder how, you know, how much of a pipe dream is it that this actually gets to be to the point where it's really solid and really usable and really stable. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring up voice recognition because that's one that always continues to surprise me. And I know it's a really, really difficult problem that very, you know, people smarter than me are spending every day working on. But I could remember, you know, 15 years ago trying out, you know, some now archaic version of like Dragon Naturally Speaking and it being kind of okay, but not not yeah. good enough to, to do much with. And it seems like that we're still in a pretty similar state now where it's getting it's getting decent, but it's not it's still not something I would just go to and use constantly. Yeah, I, I sort of I suppose, um, yeah, that with Google Glass is another one as well. Um, and, and the voice and or Siri is another classic example of it. Maybe I'm slightly odd on this, but those aren't particularly ways I want to interact with something. Um, like I don't, if I'm, if I'm using a device, I don't really want to be talking to it because it feels really weird, for example, to me being on a bus, even talking to someone on the phone, let alone, you know, holding up my phone and going, you know, Siri, take an appointment at whatever day or, you know, message Leone to say whatever, you know, it, it just feels really strange to me. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering how much sort of, it's almost uncanny valley, but it's, it's not really, that's probably the, <laughs> the wrong term, but the same sort of idea, you know, that jump between this feels really weird and this feels really natural. And I'm still at the moment, especially for, for voice and to some extent touch when it's not on either the iPad or the iPhone or, you know, the equivalent other mobile devices, but things like, you know, um, you know, my laptop or something like that. It just feels really weird to me. And, you know, as I said, it may just be, you know, that I'm getting old and get off my lawn curmudgeonly, but... Still, you know, I'm wondering how many other people are like that. Um, I suppose yeah. if I was driving a car a lot, it would make a lot more sense because everything's got to be hands-free and I don't, haven't owned a car for six years. One of the joys of living in London. Um, but, you know, still, it's not... None of them have screamed at me, this is something I want to get used to using. It's always come at me in a way of, I don't want... You know, I, I try it and it, it almost repulses me so much I don't want to keep trying it. Yeah, I think the, the context matters a lot. Um, I'm definitely in the same boat as you as far as, you know, if I'm out in public, I don't, I don't want other people just talking at their phone all the time if I'm on a bus, as you said. Um, and I also, you know, certainly don't, don't want to be the one saying, like, Siri, make an appointment, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think, in, you know, the car is a good example. I also don't drive, but uh, I, I think that's a great example of, like, when that technology can be really useful. Or even just sitting in your living room watching television, like, if you want to just 
do a quick search for a movie or pull up, you know, change a channel. I, I could see it being pretty useful for that and a lot faster if it was, if it was good than, you know, pull, pulling out some sort of device, you know, flipping through until you find the thing that you finally want and then, and then tapping on something. Yeah, maybe so I'm think, a, a better use case for some of this stuff. Like, I, I drive a couple hours a day for work right now, which is painful and ridiculous. And I do use the, the voice stuff occasionally, and I find Google's a little bit better than Siri at it. So I'll, I'll use it to send a text, you know, hands-free through my, my Bluetooth in my car. Um, mm-hmm. And I do, I've always really liked the idea of being able to speak appointments and stuff. Like, I know when Siri first came out, I used that a lot to say, you know, remind me tomorrow at 10 a.m. to go take a backup of this database or whatever. And it seemed like a really good natural way to to input data for that kind of thing, and it worked pretty well for those small use cases. Um, but I kind of like Nick in the same way. When I find myself, uh, if I'm leaving work or on my way out of the the office, and maybe I want to send Jen a message uh, about what I, you know, I'm coming home now. I'm going to stop and do this first or whatever. I really don't love to be saying things to my phone when I'm around other people when it's kind of more private information. So. I think the the voice is quite promising for a lot of use cases, but there's still that that weirdness to it of being out in public and saying, "Hey, remind me tomorrow that I need to go to the you know doctor and have such such and such done." Like nobody, you don't really want to be out in public doing that. Exactly. Yeah, for me, it's it's not the technology doesn't understand me. For example, you know, I think the voice recognition technology, especially in Surrey, is. And I, I must say I haven't actually used the Google one, so but by all accounts it's at least as good if not better. Actually understanding me and getting the words right, it's pretty much nailing it. You know, they've, they've done incredibly impressive things with those. It, it, it is more just the social interaction with other people around me and me thinking, I really don't want to have this conversation, A, with my phone, and B, in public. Yeah. yeah agreed. So I don't know that there's any, uh, you know, what else is out there in terms of our phones though, right? Like, it's typing, and I, I can't see that going away, or not, or being not the main point of entry to your devices anytime soon. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely right. All right, guys. So un- unless you guys have anything else, I th- I think that that's a show. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I guess uh, this one's been a little bit different, right? We've covered a few different topics, and and probably won't be jumping around so much in the future, and we'll we'll dive a bit deeper into a main topic. But uh, I think that was a good uh, way to fill the space and and get working on this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, this is definitely really exciting, and um, yeah, I look I look forward to to seeing where we can take this. Yeah, and I'll see you guys next time from New Zealand, on the opposite side of the world, and in a whole different time zone. <laughs> More time zone complexity. <laughs> That's exactly what we need. All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in to the first episode of Gone Mobile, and we look forward to seeing you in some future episodes. Yeah.